Thank you very much for a nice introduction. Uh, well, I am not really trying to uh, develop a business model uh, in Tohoku, but uh, uh, what the business model I found in India uh, is the one that I'm using. And uh, as you can see uh, in this, this is just the outline of my presentation. I have actually two presentations. The first one is on India. Uh, I don't know how many of you know the word the base of pyramid, uh, BOP, bottom pyramid. Uh, this is uh, sort of a, a poverty reducing business activities in developing countries, which is very much uh, becoming a new sort of business area uh, freshly developed these days. And uh, for many years, I have been engaging this uh, uh, research on these uh, uh, business models in India. And actually, uh, this is what I learned in India is the one that I'm using in Tohoku. And therefore, it is a reverse. You know, we used to teach, uh, developed countries used to teach to developing countries, but what I'm doing is a reverse because we are finding resourceless people in Tohoku. That's the key issue. How can we build business out to the people who doesn't have, who lost the resources, or who doesn't have resources? And that's what I am presenting here today. Okay, so the first part, I shall explain my theoretical framework, uh, which I analyze the situation in India, and then I formulate this understanding, and therefore, this formulation I have to present to you, you know, to make sure you understand what I'm doing uh, in Tohoku. Okay, so the uh, first part, the sustainable development frontier business and its application to Tohoku disaster reconstruction. Let me start on this sustainable development uh, uh, and the frontier business, okay? Uh, in, since the 1980s, you heard you know, frequently the words uh, globalization and sustainable development. Uh, interesting part is these two concepts really generated the changes in the way institutions are formulated and uh, consequently uh, they change the socioeconomic structures, okay? Uh, because of that globalization, you may know already all these arguments that uh, because of globalization actually uh, as the World Bank uh, report in 1990 made clear that aggravated income inequality is generating the sustainability of the global world, globalized world. Now here on the sustainability, we thought we were talking about uh, uh, environment, but immediately they connected to the issues of social structure. Uh, then globalization, you know, it's a different uh, sort of a path being developed, but as globalization developed, it aggravated the socioeconomic structure, and therefore, uh, you know, they start arguing, saying globalization is threatening the sustainability of the globalized world. As a way of correcting this negative effects, okay, uh, poverty-reducing business activities, uh, which we call basal pyramid or bottom pyramid, BOP, uh, and the corporate social responsibility uh, became very conspicuous. CSR, corporate social responsibility, has been uh, frequently emphasized, but I'm uh, dealing with issues in developing countries, and CSR is becoming very important element of uh, sort of solving the problem in developing countries by uh, big corporation as a part of the globalization. <clears throat> 
what's interesting with these movements are that they are not really what we call the foreign aid. You know, aid is a redistribution of the wealth from the rich country into the poor country. That's not what the solution is anymore. Solution is to generate the value addition uh, to, uh, to solve the problems in developing countries. And in that sense, uh, CSR and BOP, especially bottom pyramid, uh, is movement to solve the problem caused by uh, globalization without going backward with regard to globalization or more aggressively to make use of market principles to solve socioeconomic problems. And that's what is actually uh, going on. And because of these type of movements that the new civil society, uh, well, because of these movements uh, and uh, because of changes in institutional structures, the boundaries among corporations, civil society, and governments all blurring out. And that's the kind of world we're living in. And the more blurrier the situation is, more business frontier is coming out. And that's what is really uh, interesting and important uh, in the context that I'm going to present. And, uh, okay, and uh, Basel Pyramid actually is a one indication, BOP is a one indication of this vacuum which was created by institutional transformation where the business activities came out as important uh, viable solution not only to, the, to solve the socioeconomic problems in developing countries, but also when the decline of the economy in developed countries start taking place, now they start talking, there's a huge market in developing countries, in emerging market. The huge market, why? Oh, the huge number of poor people, but when the economy grows in those countries, they become middle classes, and that's where all companies are really after. And as I mentioned here, that uh, World Bank, I, uh, World Bank estimated, uh, all right, the five trillion dollar market, uh, dealing with the people with income less than three thousand dollar per year, and that's the size of the market. And at the point, I am not really uh, sort of emphasizing on this market potential. I'm specializing on development. Therefore, I'm more talking from the perspective of solving socioeconomic problems. All right, but. When all these movements are taking place, suddenly the decline of the developed uh, uh, country's economy really generated a big attention to this market. And so in a sense, one side, the globalization, the interest, business interest of the corporations, and the other side needs to solve the socioeconomic problems, which was aggravated by globalization, through the principles found in the business activities. And the, these two... Uh, quite contrasting, interesting activities are really uh, taking place. But then, uh, why this, this BOP, you know, before nobody paid attention to this field, why is it we are paying attention to this BOP activities? And my explanation, it is highly rational for any business actors as long as they understand how the world is changing. And this is the key point where the globalization, oh, I'm sorry, where the institutional changes that took place in the past 20 years 
really created the new institutions to solve the socioeconomic problems of developing countries. And companies came to recognize those institutions are functioning to reduce the risks and uncertainty of business activities handling the poor people in developing countries. Therefore, it becomes a viable business model. And that's why so many countries, so many companies are really rushing into uh, developing countries, uh, uh, especially Western corporations. I am making lots of speech. I'm making this speech in many places simply to stimulate the Japanese companies. We are behind. We have to recognize the world is changing and the companies have to go out. And I built the policy for JICA. I helped to establish a policy to stimulate this BOP business in JICA. I didn't help uh, uh, METI because METI was simply pushing companies, go, go, that's where the market is. And I don't agree with that idea. There has to be a clear understanding what's going on. Otherwise, it's, it could be, instead of reducing risks, it's going to increase the risks. That's the, my uh, point. Okay. Let me introduce what the BOP is, uh, base of pyramid. This is a population uh, uh, pyramid. Uh, income, uh, $20,000 per year annum. Uh, we have only 0.075 to 0.1 billion people. This is where big multinationals are fighting each other to uh, get the market. But if you look at uh, p you know, uh, people having income between $1,500 and $20,000, there are 1.5 and 1.75 billion uh, people. And this is where uh, many uh, companies are already trying to get into. But then, if you look at people having less than $1,500, there are 4 billion people. And this is where the future middle class, when those countries, emerging countries, India, China, come to grow. And this is where uh, companies, big multinationals, start focusing on these people, partly to look at as BOP, meaning business activities to reduce poverty in developing countries on the one side, the other side, really the potential for the future. I'll give you one uh, already, one example. Uh, uh, sorry, getting off. Uh, in South Africa, there is, you know, the uh, Danone Corporation. They sell uh, yogurt called the Danimo. Animal is a big name in South Africa because it's attractive to the customers. Animal in Africa, you know. The animal, they, they sell to the poor children in the uh, sort of ghetto area. And then they don't make any profit. But they are really getting into uh, that business, partly uh, hiring uh, poor uh, people, ladies, uh, to sell these commodities. But when they say, you know, why are you doing this? Uh, in South Africa, they never say, oh, we are trying to, you know, I mean, they, they, they are interested in helping the health condition of the poor people for children, but they will say their main purpose is to have those poor children, a huge population, get themselves acquainted with the taste of Danon yogurt. When they become 20 years later, when the economy grows, or when the children grow big, they become the customers. So it's a very interesting, it's somewhat we call it the win-win uh, model, whether you agree or not. I mean, this is the point, the vagueness of the boundaries is where the business are taking place. 
On the one side, it helps the nourishment problem of children in developing countries. It gives job for uh, you know poor uh, mothers, but simultaneously, on the part of Danone, they try they can predict that they are working to develop the future market. And this is the area that the, what the BOP is all about. But then, when you look at the India, I mean, the business with the poor people, it's too risky, too much uncertainty, nobody really gets into. And that's the way Japanese management business people tend to think, all right? And in reality, Many companies, many Western companies, start getting into those areas as a corporate social responsibility activities, as a way to contribute to solve the social problems in developing countries. But now they are saying they are lucky they did that as a CSR because they all accumulated know-how of operating their business in those poverty sector, and that itself is becoming somewhat the profit-making business. All right? And that's what the reality of the world is. And the reason why they become profit-making is because institutions are built in a way to support, uh, to support business activities dealing with the poverty sector in order to raise their income or in order to uh, have uh, you know, better living conditions. Okay, so uh, let me just define institutions here Institutions are the rules of games and the enforcement characteristics of rules of games in repeated human behavior. This is Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, 1993, uh, who advised the World Bank now. Uh, and this is the basis of the definition in what's called the institutional economics. And most of the things I present comes from the theories of institutional economics. Uh, I'm a highly theory-oriented person, and I'm trying to uh, look at the pragmatic uh, side of the application of these institutional economics. Now, the rules of games uh, is, it, it is something abstract, but it is nothing concrete. For example, if you're in Japan, there's what's called a Japanese management. Okay, there isn't any law, there isn't any rule that you have to follow, but unless you do it, you won't do a good business in Japan. So somewhat, Formally and informally, there is a what's so-called the rules of games, okay? And they change the repeated behavior of human uh, beings. And another angle of the institutional economics by, professor, uh, by a person called uh, Oliver Williamson, who won the Nobel Prize in 2008, uh, Nobel Prize in Economics, and I, uh, I have been using his theory since uh, he won a uh, Nobel Prize in 2008, but I was using his theory since 1996, so I had a very good uh, foresight. But uh, anyway, the key point of institutional economics is that you can have a diverse organizational structure. I'm just briefly saying I, I can't really spend time on this theory. Uh, diverse organizational theory, what is the efficiency in economic activity? It is not, uh, you know, relationship between output and input. Okay, that's what the, you learn in the neoclassical economics. But he says it's the fitness between the contingency, including institutions, market conditions, and all these diverse conditions. The company who chooses the best-fitting model to the condition is the one that can achieve the most efficient outcome. Okay? So if you are in Japan, 
you know, following the Japanese management is quite important, but under globalization, it's all changing around. So you have to really figure out what really is the best model to follow. And the fitness, this is Nobel Prize winning theory. Uh, the fitness is the, uh, really the source of efficiency. Okay, so what I'm saying is, there is a changes in socioeconomic values for realizing sustainable global development in the 1980s. Okay, sustainability is the element, essence of the present uh, world, I assume, I believe, and that generates institutional transformation, and then institutional trans uh, motion, transformation generate the type of the support system which will help to reduce the transaction cost uh, reduce the risks, uh, hedging the risks, and even comes up with an incentive to follow that type of a business activities. And consequence is the success of the BOP business models, all right? Okay, this part I can spend hours even talking about the changes of the uh, socioeconomic values since 1980s, but let me just uh, list up here. Uh, sustainable development, it's a complementary collaboration for sustainable development. It uh, became very important. Uh, uh, government itself is useless to solve the problem because they are so specialized and narrow-minded. So there comes out the needs to have a partnership, okay, to build a partnership with corporations or specialists, etc. It is a complementary collaboration which became very important for realizing sustainable development. Uh, second is the due to the socioeconomic problem after globalization, from market partiality to the inclusion of social fairness. Uh, social uh, issues come to be, came to be very important because aggravated income inequality will threaten the sustainability of globalized world. Sustainability, not only the environment, but also the economic activities and social uh, structures, all these become all together into one to generate a global uh, sustainable uh, society. Okay? And then uh, another important aspect is inclusion of the excluded people. Now, uh, clearly the microfinance is the inclusion of the poor people into the financial system by providing money without collateral. I hope you understand what the microfinance is. Uh, Professor Yunus, who won the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, uh, he's the one uh, who developed. And my point is the BOP is to build, uh, well, BOP is to provide the business activities in a way to generate inclusion of poor people into the market activities. Then that's what the BOP is. Okay, human rights. Uh, this is more to do with the CSR, as you know very much with the ISO 26000, just uh, 2011 it came out, that it has a 40% of the pages uh, on the human rights. And the ISO 26000 is the guideline how corporations should behave in all over the world to make sure the corporate social responsibility is fulfilled. That's the first document ever uh, giving the details of the, uh, how, to, how to behave for corporations in the world. Okay, so uh, important part is that the human rights came to be the issue of individuals and corporation instead of the government. And this is clearly one aspect of the globalization. The reason why I say this is because between 1995 to 2000, 
uh, European big multinationals are really uh, attacked by the civil society, by the NGOs, for example, Shell Corporation, uh, with the Ogoni uh, tribe incident of the Nigeria, uh, consequence was they lost 30% of the world market. Uh, I, d I don't have time to talk about this, but world market, okay? And it is because of this serious damage that European multinationals suffered, therefore they came to recognize the importance of corporate social responsibility and the human rights as something corporations had to adhere to. Okay, and unless they had these experiences, these issues never uh, came up, all right? So the human rights became something very important, and therefore, for corporations, trying to solve the poverty in developing countries is a part of the way to respond to the human rights issue, which is, uh, if you know Amatir Sen, another Nobel Prize winner on development, he says, development as freedom. Development is to free individuals from the restrictions, which one of them is a poverty, lack of education is. And development is not to become rich, it is to become free and generate human dignity, obtain the human dignity. And that type of concept actually fits to the market activities because people come to have their own business, their earnings. They come to have the pride in their activities. And that's why this complex uh, angle, business profit making and, and all these uh, human rights issues, and all these are really coming in a complex uh, matching to develop what is called the institutions to propagate uh, base of pyramid, BOP. Uh, okay, uh, relative corporate ethics to universal standards. This is United Nations Global Compacts. Okay, uh, they had about uh, 10 principles, and those are sustained by uh, four basic uh, pr uh, agreements made by, uh, approved by almost all countries in the world. They're the uh, UN Declaration of the Human Rights, uh, ILO Labor Convention, uh, Rio Convention on the Environment and the Corruption Issues in the United States. So what is becoming important is that uh, uh, somewhat the basic, uh, basic sort of uh, uh, minimum values are in its way to be formulated, all right? And many companies are operating on that basis, which ISO 26000, is clearly is the case, and uh, uh, you know it is uh, influencing the, even the field called the theory of justice. Uh, you know, you may know Michael Sandel, uh, that often on television in Japan, uh, teaching very nicely, but he is rather famous for communitarianism in the global world, meaning world is coming to have a, some minimum set of standard so that everybody can live in a peaceful. Uh, way and that's uh, what is going on, okay. And biggest of all is that uh, uh, solution to development problem is uh, shifting from aid to value creation by corporations. The business activity to create the value is something very important. For example, Bill Gates has a huge project in Indonesia trying to award anybody, even any poor people proposing a business model, and he gives money. Says, do it. This is the way what the development is. And that's, he is trying to sort of show his own experience in the process of development. That's what the world is really getting into. Okay, part of the reason is foreign aid. 
is now, if you uh, look at the proportion of the money getting to developing countries, it used to have about 60%, about 1991, 60% of the money going to developing countries, uh, uh, foreign aid, government fund. Now it's less than 20%. So the private sector is really becoming the key agent of the developing developing countries. So corporations become more, has to be more responsible for development itself. And that's what is going on. So all these generated the changes, okay, changes in the institutions. And when I say uh, institutions here are the, later on it comes clear, the collaborative partnerships uh, uh, with the NGOs, microfinances, or their concept of the governance, how to keep these relationships, collaborative relationships. And what I'm saying is that uh, here's a relationship for risk, uncertainty, and the business opportunity. In the past, this was the curve. This was the relationship between two. And here, it was you know, low risk, but business opportunity was very low. All right? And uh, if, if you go up higher, hardly any business opportunity. That's why the many companies didn't go into business with the poor people. But with the development of new institutions to uh, help the poor people come out of the poverty uh, in developing countries, there are a whole bunch of uh, systems being developed. And if you make use of them, all right, if companies make use of them, they can reduce risk and uncertainty and uncertainty. And even here, it has this big business opportunities. And this is what is going on, the transformation of the relationship between risk uncertainty and business opportunities. Okay, so what is really institutional buildup taking place? One is, as the uh, sustainable development strongly emphasized, uh, multi-stakeholder approach, that the whole bunch of partners have to come together to solve the problem. Who are they? they uh, well, the multi-stakeholder approach of the company, stock owners, employees, suppliers, consumers, microfinances, NGOs, and aid agencies, and all are coming really together to develop businesses with the poor people. All right? Next one is a cross-boundary collaboration. They couldn't, they didn't collaborate before, and this is actually one reason why Japanese companies are uh, very poor in this field, because they can't collaborate with NGOs well, with even international organizations, while Western corporations are doing very well in this point. And in a sense, they have to be open. Uh, they have to accept which partner is strong in what area and what part uh, the company is strong, and how can they be put together? Is there any mutually shared basic values uh, to get the things organized? And uh, they really have to... Uh, start developing what's called uh, ground to share the know-how and uh, reduced cost and risks, okay? And uh, they have to recognize what are risks and, you know, to reduce risks, what type of collaboration may be necessary. And the key is complementary partnership, which was a key uh, message of the uh, Brantland Commission on the Sustainable Development, the Complementary Partnership. And this is where, uh, okay, they're really becoming an important part in getting business going. Uh, another important part was governance approach, 
which is when you when partners come together, there has to be uh, okay governance, and in a sense, there has to be uh, transparency, accountability, equality, and fairness. And the key is, unless trust is generated, there will not be any collaboration in this uh, field. Okay, so. Uh, in a sense, what becomes important is the Western corporation, they have to really understand the rationality of the poor people. This is, again, another Nobel Prize winner, the Stiglitz. You may know him, Stiglitz, uh, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, I'm sorry, 1993. Douglas Norris is 1992. So uh, he strongly emphasizes development comes from organizational structure, changing the organizational structures, especially on the information economics. How how to distribute the information, differentiate the way the individual comes to participate in the process of development. Okay, so in that sense, for example, any information in the past, rich people or somebody who has a power made use of the knowledge that one has an information, kept it inside to himself, and made use of it to exploit the poor. And the key issue is to open the information to the poor and generate the trust and stimulate the participation to the uh, economic activities. And you know, to generate the changes in the rational behavior of the poor people, there are some restrictions and the limitations. Therefore, how to change their behavior is very much to do with the incentives. How to put, this is a purely uh, institutional economics, how to put incentives in the whole system in a way to trigger the changes become uh, important part, and that requires institutional buildup. And that's what uh, is taking place all over the world, especially with the uh, uh, agency, the development agencies. Uh, another point is that uh, focusing on knowledge of the poor as BOP 2.0, uh, meaning key is uh, we, as, as we find ambiguity of the boundaries, and this is where the knowledge can be mobilized, all right? And it is the new knowledge which becomes the base of generating new business activities. In a sense, what's going on as the bottom pyramid or uh, poverty-reducing business activity, it is efforts to mobilize the knowledge of the poor, okay? knowledge of the poor uh, in market activities. Now, there is also uh, assumption on the Hayek Hayek uh, thinks every individual has their own knowledge. And the market is the place where if you have something unique, or if you have something, if you have something that others don't have, raise your hand and participate in the market. And then how many will come to look at you? And that's where the market start taking place. In a sense, he was more talking of ventures, okay? ventures and new businesses, uh, though neoclassical looks only mostly at the uh, demand and supply, which also partly is true as a market, but uh, Hayek start looking at in a very different angle. Uh, and this is where uh, the knowledge uh, becomes the base of development, the base of the transformation of society. Okay, and that's, uh, uh, that's why the knowledge management and all these concepts come out to be uh, quite important. Okay, so if you try to generate business in the poor sector, you have to mobilize the knowledge of the poor. Don't think you, you know, you know, all those people don't know anything. That's completely wrong. 
there are a whole bunch of biz new business opportunities really coming up, and we see them actually taking place in India. Okay, another point is the long tail. Uh, this is actually the, uh, how Amazon.com came to uh, be successful in the business activity. Uh, the old bookstores look at here, and they target higher prices, and then their market is very much limited. But Amazon decided with the computer, with the IT system, they found old books, which nobody ever reads, all right? They can store in the computer. But amazingly, they found there are lots of people who would like to go back to very inexpensive old book. So going back history, you know, prices, uh, $20, $30, demand comes, they can just print it and sell it. I give you my own example. I have published three papers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Poverty Institute when I was a graduate student, okay? And uh, I don't have a copyright, so I don't earn anything. I was really surprised when I looked, checked my name in English, I found one paper being sold $25 and still quoted in many places. And I was surprising, I was really surprised. It is 19, uh, that's 1978 paper still quoted and then uh, it is $25. For me, it's, I, don't have, I don't gain anything because I was a graduate student and I was writing paper for them and so they got a copyright everything, but they must be, you know, $25 paper, uh, printing costs maybe $1 and mailing costs $2 or $3. So the cost is $3 out of $25. That's where, well, they may have to pay something like $5 to the Poverty Institute, which is, you know, $8 out of 25 and Amazon.com makes money here, all right? And this is the way that Amazon.com came to generate the profit in their business activities. Before, they were simply losing money, all right? Even they use IT, they were losing money. And this is the point. For lower prices, you can get huge market if you target the poor people. If you target rich people, you are limited in their earnings. And this is the point where the scale economy uh, with regard to business activities vis-a-vis uh, -vis poor people come to play very important role, okay? So, uh, okay, there are other sort of business, regular business senses which help to uh, implement uh, BOP, but uh, let me not get into this. Uh, okay, so all I talked, let me give you just concrete example. The most famous case is the uh, Hindustan Unilever in India, all right? Uh, it's called the Shakti program. Okay, let's just SP uh, of HUL. Okay, they are there to empower the poor village ladies, okay? And Shakti means empowerment, okay? And that's a very important uh, slogan of the United Nations uh, to solve the problems in developing countries, okay? But when you really read the Harvard University case studies, very interesting, not many people know about this, but why, uh, I'm sorry, I should, uh, I should, I'm sorry. Okay, why they started getting into this, uh, uh, looking at these poor people? The key point is they were losing market in India. They were there from 1890s, but they sold this uh, uh, road smell, Western soap and all this. But if you go to India, you start finding some Indian smelling very nice, 
Okay, very nice soap, and that, you know, I don't mind even using it at home. It smells different. It's not rose, but it's an Indian herb uh, in, on, on the uh, soap. And they are really developing a big market, and Hindustan Unilever start losing the market. Okay, the question is, what can we do? What do we have to do? Not only in the area where they have distribution channels, everything, they try to restructure, but they thought maybe we, they may not have a chance to survive in the future. So only thing is, in India, there are huge areas where nobody gets into, especially in the business activities. And that's where they decide to go into, says, let's build a business in those areas, okay? And therefore, they develop what's called a uh, bottom pyramid, BOP business. What they did, <clears throat> they are on the one side interested in uh, helping the poor ladies to increase their income and uh, have improved their living standard. And also the soap and all these, it's a health issues, therefore it helps the health conditions of the people in those uh, areas. But then they came to recognize that three Indians employees of the uh, Hindustan Unilever went into those countryside, spent whole year doing just around, and they found there are microfinances financed by state uh, uh, funding, okay, financed by state funding, and then they can recognize, oh, that's nice because those people, they have a group of eight to ten people, and they all together save money. When they reach some certain level, then they actually uh, lend the money, okay, lend the money to the uh, uh, people there. So out of ten people, only one person get the funding to do their own, uh, that person's business, while responsibility is with the group. And if this person fails to return the money, nobody gets another chance. And therefore, it is a group pressure making sure that person returns the money. And it is a social pressure. Uh, this is uh, more like uh, uh, Yunus, uh, Professor Yunus's idea on the Grameen Bank, that uh, uh, social pressure makes a person to do the right business. And in a sense that uh, uh, they actually do, you know, proper business, and the return rate is something like ninety-eight percent, far better than what we have in Japan, right? And that's the way uh, things are operated. Now, this is the point they came to recognize: Ah, we can ask these microfinances. Uh, the Hindustan Lever people thought we can ask these uh, microfinances to recommend three people best performer, three best performers, therefore they're highly trustworthy, they know how to do the business, but then Hindustan Lever, Unilever also asked the microfinances to finance these three people, okay? So what did Hindustan Lever, Unilever did? They said, all right, I train you, you three how to sell commodities, it's not that difficult, all right? And they gave these commodities in return for cash. Poor do business with the poor people, often the cash dealing is becoming important. So they give commodities and get the cash. And in a sense, they increase these uh, uh, empowered ladies without any cost and any financial risk, all right? Because they're actually selling the commodity immediately. And then they are the ones who borrow the money from microfinance, goes out to sell uh, those commodities, and then actually uh, they uh, uh, they make about uh, uh, 
700 rupees per month, and their loan is about 200 rupees in, per month, and therefore they make 500 rupees. It's a, it's a small amount in terms of dollar, but it is a big money for a very poor area. Okay? So this is the way, and they really made, without spending any cost, they really actually made a big profit. All right? So it's a, uh, I'm not emphasizing on the part of the profit, but the key is it was, it started as a way to uh, raise the living condition of the poor ladies, and therefore it became very much of the one side of the doing business, and business is helping those people, uh, but uh, it is generating revenue and profit to for corporations. Uh, it may not be, it, it's not the maximizing profit, maximize the profit, but uh, it is generating some profit. Okay, uh, so another case is what's called the e-chopal, which is uh, India, there's a, a Mandi monopoly. There's a company called the Mandi which monopolized the agricultural uh, grain uh, trade. And so uh, they know that they are all cheated and they are there uh, in the market from morning till night and suddenly they are called in and they, uh, they just get their uh, crops weighed. And when they uh, carry the crops, they deliberately uh, drop half and just uh, measure the rest. And it is a highly uh, wrong uh, behavior actually uh, prevalent in the Mandi. So here it comes out, uh, uh, this is the Indian uh, Tobacco Corporation. Uh, the E-Chopal is an NGO uh, established by the Indian Tobacco Corporation. They develop what's called a Sanchalak. Sanchalak is an office where one tiny uh, office with one person with one computer, okay? And then this person in the Sanchalak swears saying, I am here to work for the benefit of the poor people. I am not, I'm paid by Indian corporation, uh, but I am here to help the poor people to do the right business. First thing he does is he gives the prices of the crops Chicago market through the computer. Have them participate in the market activities so that they know, they immediately know they are cheated by Monday. The prices are so different from uh, Chicago crop price and what they, what they sold their price. So immediately they come to have a very strong participation. And then uh, E-Chopal develop their own places for doing the right uh, measurement, correct, everything correct. And this is the issue of the governance, open governance, that do everything properly for the mutual benefit without this, uh, without hindering the disclosure information or with the, uh, everybody's participation. And the consequence is that the, uh, they successfully raise, they terminate all the intermediaries and $6 uh, per ton is increased. Okay, well, let me, let me just uh, uh, skip this because I am uh, running out of time. All right, so, you know, these NGOs or the companies working with NGOs or microfinances, these are institutions developed from the 1970s. Professor Yunus, as a Grameen Bank, spent enormous amount of time to develop these mechanisms, then they spread all over the world. It's all over developing countries. And if you look at the UNDP, now they say, we are doing inclusive business. Inclusive business meaning including the poor people in market activities. And they are providing the aid, 
you know, support and diverse activities to get uh, uh, BLP business going. And that's what the JICA is trying to do. I, uh, I advise them to get all this uh, package out. Uh, uh, there are about uh, 60 to 70 companies working on it, but I assume only two or three are really uh, doing very well. But anyway, the basic is another interesting company, but uh, let me not uh, get into it. So this is the mechanism. What's going on? There's a institutions, a set of values there, and then the collaborative partnerships are there to link diverse resources together to help somebody who doesn't have resources. NGOs, microfinances, corporations all come together to give the capability to a person who doesn't have any financial resources, who doesn't even have capability to do so, right? But uh, fortunately, the Tohoku cases, people are highly capable, but they just don't have the resources. So this is the point where I came in saying, well, I may be able to try to fill some of the missing links in a way so that resources can be mobilized. And that's what I did. And I, uh, 2009, developed, along with two others, uh, NGO called the uh, BSIA, Durable Social Innovation Alliance, uh, or Asia. This is to promote the social business in Japan as well as in Asia. Okay? And then I'm a board member there, and, uh, but I am in charge of this bridge for talk reconstruction. My project, uh, the first, is funded by the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan when they had this Tomodachi fund, all right? And then uh, I got uh, additional operating uh, money from the US NGO called the Global Giving, which is operated by a Japanese lady uh, who was formerly working for the World Bank, uh, basically for developing countries, but now she has a fund for Japanese uh, disaster recovery. Okay, that's why I, you know, I found there's this these type of places and I wrote to them. I have to write the proposal to them. And that's what I was uh, getting as the base. I personally had what's called a CSR watch because I have been uh, sort of helping the uh, FACET, Foundation for Advanced Studies for International Development, uh, seminar called the uh, Business and Development. And since 1997, I have every year the seminar to teach what business can do to help solve the problems in developing countries. Not necessarily uh, BOP, but other things, NGOs, etc. And then, uh, you know, I shifted as the uh, social focus shifts. Uh, you know, usually I am ahead about five years of the changes within Japan. I shifted to CSR and I shifted to BOP. And lucky part is the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs provided funding to take business people to those developing countries. I was taking them to poverty sector in the Philippines uh, first about seven years. Then I took them to India because India, full of nice examples of base of pyramid, the BOP. And it's just their creativity is amazing. And that also indicates poverty is very serious. And that's why people can come up with uh, business models. And that's where I learned uh, that uh, uh, the business models are quite important. So what I did was, all I did, I got the money to operate, but all I did was to link uh, with a project somebody wants to do something, and then looked for monetary resources. 
or experts to hook them in to the project. So the re two resources are combined together. Originally, I thought I was, I helped to bring in the UN Global Compact Japan Network. Uh, I helped uh, initially to bring the UN Global Compact into Japan, and I knew lots of people. They were willing to help me. And I had also uh, people from Coal Roundtable Japan Committee, which is the all CSR issues. Uh, they had uh, lots of nice connections with big corporations, like the UN Global Compact had the connection members, 140 big corporations. Uh, unfortunately, none of these worked. And my original idea was completely wrong. Why? Because I was thinking the company would like to help small, medium-sized firms in the disaster area. Companies that can generate, that can get aid are already fairly big size and they will immediately get, they got immediately the help from other companies. But then below certain level, there was hardly any business except small shops. And those are the people that I felt I have to do something with them. That's the only way to rebuild economic activities in that area because somewhat bigger size middle companies they get help already, but they are, like Rikuzen and Tagada, only about two or three of them. The rest are all small shops. So the question is, what can we do? And it is a very difficult issue. So what I did was I made the direct contact. I mean, I went in in May, uh, making use of the link through the uh, Peace Win Japan, went to Rikuzen and Takada, and tried to uh, discuss the issue with the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and I didn't. Uh, they were very hesitant because they knew that only three companies they had, that has been already helped by others, and the rest of the huge number of the shops, they are not certain whether they are willing to start, restart. This is May, uh, you know, restart their business. They're getting quite old too. Uh, so it was a quite a difficult uh, situation. But I started uh, uh, going to, uh, okay, Minam uh, Sandikcho, Isatomai, and also uh, to Kamaishi, and Kamaishi is the one which is the most interesting project. This is the type of things I wanted to do, and that's what's going on. Uh, the sources of money I got was a British Chamber of Commerce in Japan, American Chamber of Commerce in Japan, uh, Kanagawa Prefecture, Tono Volunteer Center, Sofia University uh, is helping, you know, professors are helping me, uh, Refugee International Japan, operated by British, but it's a, it's a Japanese NGO, uh, NISA Child Care Network, which is the best-known uh, child care system promoter. Excellent. Uh, they work with uh, UNICEF and, and all these international organizations. Just a few ladies operating all this operation, but an excellent group. Uh, Biomass Forest Network Japan, which is also another environmentally concerned uh, group, and they are the ones. And outside, uh, US NGO Global Giving, uh, gave me about uh, uh, 3 million yen. Okay, uh, American Chamber, of course, 1.7 million yen. Uh, give to Asia, to Kamaishi Project, uh, 15 million yen. And all this money, just by one proposal, they provided me all this funding. Okay, and uh, uh, Japan Disaster Relief Fund, Boston, uh, was uh, 2 million yen to support the child care. Okay, uh, so, okay, I make sure I follow I follow whatever I learned in the Indian cases. What is it? Uh, collaborative system. I don't go in unless there is a local NGO who can operate and who have uh, extra resources 
and their capability. And that's the one thing, that's an initial condition. Uh, and then I go to the local places, interview them, what are the needs? And then I make sure there's an evolutionary potential. I don't want to really spend the money for the project which disappears after one year. Okay? I am really sticking with a few projects to make sure they have evolutionary future. And that's what I'm doing. All right? Uh, and uh, that is very much a sustainable ability, sustainability of these projects. And then very much the knowledge based upon the local people. All right? I have to interview them whether they are really willing to do or they are really willing to uh, work. Uh, they have a good idea or not, whether their projects are viable or not. But there are lots of approaches. I didn't really take care of them. Right? They have to be somewhat uh, viable. Okay? And all this multi-stakeholder approach, cross-country collaboration, governance approach. Uh, governance, uh, I know the governance is important, but when I get the money from US NGOs, I have to really prove everything. I have to spend three months really collecting the documents to prove my, about my NGO, about myself, and say, you can trust me. And that's what I, all through documents. And when I go through this governance, then I can't, I have to strictly uh, adhere to the principles that the, uh, those NGOs operate. And then when I work with the local NGOs or local partners, I have to force them to follow. And this is the only way I can get the system going. Okay, so uh, let me uh, start with this uh, uh, building a temporary shop tent in Isatomae, Minami Sanrikja. Isatomae is an isolated place. They didn't even get the help from the self-defense force, and it was the U.S. military that went in first. For three days, they have to sustain themselves, all right? So in that sense, they are very well organized inside, among themselves, and that's very important for me because they are reliable, all right? And what's going on was around the May, they were taking a taxi to go to Shizugawa, which is half an hour away by, you know, half an hour away by taxi. And they are spending fortune just to go shopping, go and one hour taxi drive. That's quite expensive. And well, maybe four people together, they go. But their interest is why I am spending money, the things they buy daily, they have to spend in a different place. And besides, they have to pay for taxi. You know, can we build the economy inside the community where uh, this, this is the map? Uh, this part all destroyed, and 80% or 70 to 80% of towns destroyed, hardly anything left as a part of the village. And this is the way it looks, uh, you know, this uh, rubble. And so what I decided was, this is, I experienced the tent shop in the Rikusen Takada when I went into May, and it was interesting, that was the uh, second weekend that the tent was established and the people are greeting each other saying, ah, you are still alive. You know, all these uh, emotional encounters. And then the people came in and started opening a coffee shop, you know, uh, with their own sort of uh, uh, financing. They gave it for free, a coffee shop. And that's what the community, rebuilding the community became the base of reconstruction of the uh, township or the village. 
So uh, I decided, well, uh, Biomass Network came to talk to me saying they would like to help this effort to build local economy and local community together. So uh, they said they have a tent, which they have purchased previously, all right, uh, and, but they don't have money to build it. So I talked to the uh, British Chamber of Commerce and they helped me a lot to look for somebody who donate, but they, they couldn't find. And suddenly they found this uh, Japan, uh, Refugee International Japan, which was NGO uh, to aid the refugees in Africa. They decided to put some money here. And then I got 2.5 million yen with five, this, this thing costs 5 million yen just simply to establish. This tent itself costs 2.5 million yen. Um, and this is uh, where the shops are built. And this is where the people did the shopping. You know, it's a, it's a community rebuilt. Very nice, very important. It is a, a one, mech, it's a first place within the village people can get together and feel they are together, all right? Maybe they did in the refugee places, etc. cetera, uh, you know, the temporary uh, evacuation places, etc. But this is where they actually do the uh, living. Something very important, maybe if you go to barbers, you already know that the barber shop are very important. This is where the information actually circulates in the village. In the, in the village. This person set, sent the information from one person to another, and it's interesting, psychological relief, especially all the uh, ladies who are in the temporary housing, you know, they feel after a haircut saying, oh, you know, for the first time, I feel alive. You know, oh, I'm very, I feel very active. And this is an 18 to a three-year-old lady. He, he, she said, maybe I should start looking for a boyfriend. <laughs> and it's, it's an impact, you know. I mean, this is the way uh, community rebuilding start taking place. Oh, sorry. Unfortunately, uh, the key problem was the winter was too cold. And... Uh, uh, Shops, many shops left this place after three months of use during the winter time. Water froze and busted, uh, uh, busted, and we didn't. Unfortunately, uh, we didn't have a heater inside. We could have put the heater, but it might have caused a fire. All right, so the, we we were prohibited to put the heater. Except this is a barber shop. Many shops. This is where uh, this is a, a barber shop. This is government established. Uh, a commercial uh, place, which is presently even active. This is where they moved out. This was established in November. We established our tent early October. So for two to three months, we really helped the community to, to rebuild. But they all moved out because it was too cold. There was a computer uh, school. Uh, they found that the, their computers are frozen and breaking up. So they actually moved out here. Uh, but what's happening is that the, this barber... This, they have to pay something like 40000 50000 per month, per month, and they don't, many people don't have money. So somebody who doesn't have money stay like this in the tent. And actually, something very interesting is they are going to raise four to five meters high in the land as, as a reconstruction process. Therefore, within a few months, so they had only this construction only about since uh, December last year, so only about one year, and they have to destroy it, and they move to the place close to, <laughs> close to where the tent is. So the tent is gonna be again used as the market in these places. 
and also the new community we built right next to the tent. Uh, so actually, tent, uh, we worried that we, you know, spending five million yen and they used only two to three months, and that was a kind of sad. But then we found actually that tent became the community center, uh, children's summer house, summer schools, and all those diverse activities really start taking place. All right, and therefore, basically, it functions in a way uh, to to build a uh, uh, community. All right, next one is the creating shop maps in Rikuzen Takada. Uh, I mentioned that I went into Rikuzen Takada, and I couldn't get the positive response, despite the fact UN Global Compact came with me and said, we will help you. We all together help Rikuzen Takada, but they couldn't respond because people are not certain whether they would like to restart the business or not. So what we did was, what I did was, uh, you know, I talked to uh, Tono, uh, Tono uh, Kanaga Prefecture Tono Volunteer Center. Uh, one member is uh, my team in the DSIA NGO. So I put them together. These are the shops. Uh, these are the shops, you know, uh, scattered all over in Rikuzen Takada. So uh, I talked to the Chamber of Commerce and uh, have them come together, discuss what can we do. And so I said, Oh, it may be nice to have a map of the shops scattered all over the place because nobody knows where everybody is. So that's what we did. Okay, actually, the IT specialists in coming from Yokohama did it. I mean, I just fixed the, this meeting and get the uh, project going. And this is the map that came out. Who is where? Uh, and next one is the medical uh, and uh, 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 the oil or where they can purchase oil. Very important to the cold places. This turned out to be very popular. Everybody in the housing, uh, temporary housing area, they borrowed, uh, you know, they got this. And this, is, this was also in the web page of the uh, Chamber of Commerce. But after finishing this, this project was given to the local NGO. You know, they are carrying it, I hope. Uh, and then uh, this IT team uh, started helping building the uh, homepages for free to those uh, places, okay? So, uh, so this was uh, uh, to, again, start community. Another thing I did was to help this uh, uh, child-rearing center called the Kiraring Kids, all right? This is a very young ladies uh, who started taking care of children. They started uh, child care center two years before the disaster, but then, a uh, few months, few weeks after the disaster, they started child caring uh, place uh, to take care of children because they are really in a psychologically very, very serious situation, actually. And the children's behavior is something immediately come out whenever they are in the stress, all right? And ex especially like uh, uh, family, uh, mother died and father is unemployed and drinking a lot, those, day, those areas, lots of drinking, and the domestic violence, and, and all these all these sort of uh, uh, impact, psychological impact, come to appear all this through the children. And we found it is quite important uh, to help them, okay, to rebuild. Uh, and also, uh, while I was, uh, uh, you know, writing a proposal to Japan Disaster Relief Fund Boston, uh, they won the uh, award from the Nom Nom Nomiu uh, Yomiuri newspaper 
for Child Care Award. And that means that, that we were making a right choice. This is a good group, and we decided to uh, help. But our purpose is not to help them to operate, but to build their capabilities. On the one side, I talked to this NISA Child Care Network to help them to get every necessary qualification to, care, to take care of the children, because some of them really didn't have proper qualification. They are willing to help, but they didn't. So that's the one side I'm working on. The other side, let's look at the children's psychology. University, uh, Sofia University has lots of specialists on child psychology, uh, child welfare, and also uh, grief care. Only one place in Japan that institute of grief, grief care exists, and that's how to deal with uh, uh, members who lost family. And, and that's actually this institute was established by J.R. West when they had accident in the Akashi, uh, not Akashi, Nishi Akashi, they had this uh, train colliding and it killed 150 or 20 or 50 people. And they donated this money to build the institute, how to take care of the grief of the people. And we inherited and we are building this uh, grief care uh, center. But this strange name, maybe I had nothing to do previously. They are the ones most helping the local uh, people because they, after one and a half year, suddenly their, their life is somewhat sta became stable and suddenly they felt psychological memories coming back. It's a very, very difficult period at this moment. So this team from Sofia is doing a lot and teaching them how to cope psychologically with these type of situations, etc. And this, I raised the money saying, this is what's necessary in this area. Uh, okay, so uh, these are the uh, pictures of the group. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I took the pictures away from the handouts because I don't have the permission to have them uh, printed. Uh, and this is where they finally got the new place and this is where they're operating, okay? Now, I'm sorry I'm running out, but the, let me uh, just go best project that I have, which is the uh, kitchen car project by semi-government organization called the Kamaishi Otsutsu Incubation Center, okay? Uh, what we do is I got the money to purchase kitchen car, okay? We lend the kitchen car to former restaurant owners who lost the restaurants through disaster for uh, uh, 15,000 yen per month, right? Very inexpensive. But then by, uh, we have a, a facility for cooking. So by selling the food, they make about 300,000 to 40,000, make them rich enough to support themselves as well as to save money to rebuild their restaurant, okay? So they often go to mountainside because that's where the temporary housings are. The, in those area, flatland is not available. So lots of mountainside is used and there's hardly anything there. So they go there to serve hot food. But this is not really important. The purpose is to, re, to build the industry there. So actually, uh, we buy used boxcar, uh, something like this used boxcar and use the local automobile producer to convert it into the kitchen car and have the certification done by the uh, health organization in the Iwate prefecture, okay? And then this is a uh, uh, night, it's cold there. So at night, this is only, it's a heavy, but inside here, 
uh, at night they can eat and drink uh, there's a, a stove inside and uh, you know if four people get in there around six o'clock they never come out until 11 and they keep drinking it's, it's a community building and these are the uh, okay so uh, converting it uh, so to stimulate the local uh, automobile industry another one is that we tried to build which is not completed yet has a plastic uh, plastic uh, uh, let me just see here see this one is using a table but why not let's have the restaurant looking tables here so that they can sell commodity easier the reason is they often go to events and people lined up but they are so slow serving from the car people go away so they are losing business so why not let's have a uh, table and something nice looking looking like a restaurant you know plastic things which can be carried and uh, you know that's what we are uh, at the present um, uh, planning and designing uh, the reason is there is a cluster of plastic firms in Kamaishi right we are trying to create a business for them and have them get going and then uh, DSIA also uh, helped to bring in uh, experts on the uh, on the carbon fiber specialist which is not really anything to do with this but we are trying to sh uh, build the capability of the uh, local automobile industry as well as plastic industry to build the future okay and I am saying that well we can construct this and sell all right sell all over disaster area that will generate enough demand if they run out of the market they can sell to developing countries you know this type of car these cars two million yen and one million yen to convert there are lots of uh, uh, city offices come and say, okay, we're going to do our own. And they buy brand new, cost 15 million yen. And with the 15 million yen, you can have uh, three cars like this. All right? And that's what uh, they, they think in a purely business model. But, uh, uh, you, you know, making use of inexpensive uh, sort of method and making sure everything we do, money is dropped locally so that economy can be recovered and so that industries can be recovered and that's we are hoping to rebuild okay uh just just last thing uh something very interesting came out was when they had the uh cleaning up uh going on they had the engineers from honda and the nissan and they started talking about saying well in this rubble it may be nice to have a nice coffee shop all right and then um, actually, Honda engineer left his company and developed uh, developed a car like this. And it's actually Ajinomoto money. It's not my money, uh, my NGO's money, but uh, Ajinomoto money they established. You have seen something like this in the United States, other places. This is the first one ever built in Japan. In Japan, all right? And this is the first car, this venture, which got an idea in this disaster place. They established a venture and start building it. And with the money we collected, there will be a three cars like this purchased. The first three cars will be purchased by this disaster relief project. And they are trying to build some kind of a community like this so that people can come together, etc. Okay, uh, the conclusion is, 
What I learned in India, okay, I am just implementing here. It's a collaborative method, uh, governance, openness, and all these together, actually. And what was missing was an uh, agent that links diverse organizations internationally, getting money uh, inside of Japan. Uh, the one of the most difficult part is the governance. The governance exercised by Western NGOs are very tight, very difficult, and incommunicable to the Japanese partners. And this is where I really struggle, but that may be the reason why I can function as the translator of these different rules of games, different institutions between two different sets of the world. And if everybody become, come to learn these rules of games, then I may not be any use to them. So this is where, so if that happens, I disappear and my work is over. <laughs> okay, so that's, I'm sorry, I took a bit longer time.